light to those in the dark, um, and may they uh, be able to comfort those who are experiencing loss, especially so near and so close uh, to Christmas. So, Father, be with those who are suffering, whether it's the tornadoes or um, some other type of affliction. And may we here this morning hear your word. May we respond to it appropriately. May we be faithful stewards and be focused this morning. Allow us not to be distracted by our anxieties or or our worries. And we ask this, Father, so that we would be edified, equipped, and sanctified so that we may go out and glorify you in all that we do. We ask this, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. When you go on a diet, it's not simply enough that you cut out the sweets, that you cut out the the bad stuff, especially if you're adding physical activity to your life. You have to replace those bad calories with good calories, with good food options. Well, last week in 1 Kings 18, we, we saw the need to mortify our sin in order to know and to experience God's blessing in our lives. But this week, in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, we consider the the now what? Having mortified our sin, having chosen Yahweh, having removed the idols out of our hearts, out of our lives, what are we to do now? It's easy to get worked up in the moment, to get convicted by the Spirit, and be called to a moment of faithfulness. But what about after the music fades? After our sins and idols are slayed, when the crowd disperses, the sun sets, rises again the next day, and we realize the world is the same. Our flesh is weak, our spirit is tired, we are once again hungry. Where do we turn now for sustenance? Well, Elijah, again, is going to help us to see and understand what we must do. Elijah himself, having just come down from Mount Carmel in the power of Yahweh, having slayed 450 of the prophets of Baal. But yet, Israel is still idolatrous. Jezebel, evil as ever. So how does God show himself to Elijah now, this man of God in the moment of despair? And how do we today fight fear and despair with God's help? Well, let's begin by reading uh, the first five verses of chapter 19. And if you need a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats around you. If you need a Bible at home, please keep a Bible. So we're going to read verse 1 through the first part of verse 5. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Yahweh. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So we left off last week with Elijah running boldly ahead of Ahab uh, and beat him there 22 miles to Jezreel from Mount Carmel. But now he runs from it. And if you are wondering, is Elijah a man like me? Yes, he is, right? Remember we talked about in chapter 17 how Elijah is a man with the same nature as you and I. Yet in one moment he stood boldly before Ahab, before the prophets of Baal and all of Israel, And then at the very word of Jezebel, he flees. And why does he flee? 
Why? In part for fear of his life, right? I mean, Jezebel has killed the prophets of Yahweh before. Obadiah, in verses 4 and 13 of 18, we're told Obadiah hid the prophets of Yahweh from Jezebel because she was in the process of cutting them down. Jezebel had the gall, the, the will to actually slay the prophets of Yahweh, whereas Ahab might have been more hesitant, more resistant to the idea. Elijah also is maybe not just running simply for his fear of his life, but despair, and we'll read this later in the passage, but despair over the apparent lack of spiritual change in Israel, how they have continued and continue to forsake Yahweh and his commandments, or that even Jezebel, even after what Ahab told her what happened on Mount Carmel, she continues to be unrepentant. In fact, she's just more steadfast to Baal worship than ever. So standing before doubters and haters, Elijah having calling down fire from heaven, slaying the 400 false prophets, that is surely an exhausting thing to do. But no matter how Elijah felt or what he saw on top of Mount Carmel, the impact certainly was not lasting enough for Israel or for Queen Jezebel to repent. Thus Elijah, thinking that all this is inconsequential perhaps and fearing his life, he flees. Now, if he's still in Jezreel, and we don't know if he's actually still in Jezreel, the text doesn't tell us, but if we were to assume that he is where the text leaves, us, leaves him at, he has to travel 94 miles south to Beersheba. He's going a long way. Not only is he entering into Judah territory, in other words, territory that Queen Jezebel has no sovereign power in, or King Ahab for that matter, not only does he go into Judah territory, but he goes as far south as he can into Judah, leaves his servant there, and then he himself goes another day's journey. And if you've been paying attention, Elijah can cover quite a bit of distance in a day. So who knows where he's at now? He's somewhere in the middle of nowhere, um, in the middle of a desert, and he finds a broom tree. And if you uh, follow the questions on my pre-sermon email, the broom tree, in Google broom tree, uh, you'd see a broom tree is about 10 meters, 33 feet high with a sh- uh, Branches that stay low to the ground, allowing a shade. And he is under this broom tree, finding shade. And it's a common tree um, and in the desert. And it's an interesting thing because he's under this broom tree because he's fleeing death. Right? He's fleeing the hand of Jezebel. But yeah, at the same time, he's like, Yahweh, can you kill me now? Like, I'm, I'm ready to, to die. But that's perhaps because, almost like David, he would rather fall by the hand of Yahweh rather than the hand of of man rather than the hand of evil queen Jezebel. So let's read on and see how God strengthens his prophet. We'll start with the second part of verse 5 and read through verse 8. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of Yahweh came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So here we see Yahweh providing for Elijah once again, just like he provided for Elijah at the brook at Kareth and uh, in the Sidonian town of Seraphat. But here, um, Elijah's not just in need of provision of food. He needs strength. He needs sustenance. And Yahweh begins doing that here by this broom tree. He sends an angel to give Elijah a baked cake and a jar of water. And then let me talk about this um, wording here, this, this angel of, of, of Yahweh. 
right? You'll see this throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. In some cases, when you read that, that is what is called a Christophany. That is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, that, that God, the Son of God specifically, in some sort of form, in, in some manner of, of flesh, presents himself. Consider Genesis 22, uh, when Abraham's about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel of the Lord speaks to him. And in that context, it is clear that it is God speaking to him, but yet it is referred to as the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. Or in Exodus 3, with Moses in the burning bush, the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And that's a reference to Yahweh. But we must be careful that not every instance of the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh means it's a Christophany, right? Sometimes it is just simply an angel of the Lord. This is an angel that belongs to Yahweh. Context is what determines whether or not it is God himself or a literal messenger, a literal angel that belongs to him sent by him. And in our context here, we're not given enough information to think that it is God himself. So just want to be clear on that. Now, the cake and water are given to Elijah to give him strength, because in verse 7, the angel tells him, the journey that's before you, it's, it's too great for you. In other words, you're weak, and you need to power up, so to speak, so you can do the journey that is before you. So he eats and drinks the bread. Elijah wanted death, but he does not get what he wants. He gets what he needs, because his life is not his own. His life is Yahweh's. And note the journey he goes on, and this is important. It's a journey that lasts 40 days and 40 nights. When you see the number 40, that ought to cause you to go, huh, 40, I wonder, what's, what, I wonder what this is about, because 40 is a special number, especially in the Old Testament. Consider Genesis 7 and the flood. How long did the rain fall on the earth? 40 days and 40 nights. How long did Moses and the Israelites wander in the desert? 40 years. So here, Elijah goes 40 days and 40 nights to cover a distance that Elijah didn't need a full 40 days and 40 nights to cover. We don't know exactly where Mount Horeb is. The, the exact location is disputed, is debated. But out of all those options, and within the area of all those options, and all the potential options that could be out there, it wouldn't take Elijah 40 days and 40 nights of constant traveling Right? If you notice the text, he doesn't eat again. It's on this food and drink that he travels 40 days, 40 nights straight. So it's, a, it's a, a type of fasting that he's doing as he's traveling. He doesn't need that much time to cover this distance. So this detail, this event in Elijah's life is intentional. It is on purpose. And, and imagine if you're the original hearer of this, you're thinking, is he the next Moses? Right? And it's not just the 40 days, the 40 nights. Consider the destination. Where is he heading? Mount Horeb. Exodus 3.1. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Right? This is after Moses uh, committed murder in Egypt and he fled. And then he's been spending about 40 years uh, in Midian, um, in, in hiding, so to speak. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And what happens in Exodus 3? the burning bush. Yahweh presents himself. Exodus 3, on, on Mount Horeb, the mount of God, it's where God tells Moses, hey, you're going to go free my people. You're going to go to Egypt. Here's a sign for you. Throw your staff on the ground. It turns into stake. Stick your, uh, stick your hand um, into your coat. It becomes leprous, and then he heals it. And then it's also where God says, 
when Moses asked him, who shall I tell them sent me? I am that I am. I am. Yahweh, it's where God reveals his name to Moses. It's on Mount Horeb that God says, when you come back from Egypt, on this mount, you will serve me. You will worship me. Because another name for Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's on this mountain that Moses in Exodus 33 asks to see the glory of God. And God tells him, here, go in this cleft, go in this cave. I will pass by you. I will cover your face with my hand. I will pass by you, and you can see the back, the backside of my glory. So this is the connection. That if you're, if you're in exile and you're hearing the story about Elijah, you're thinking 40 days, 40 nights, it's like the 40 years in the wilderness, and he's going to Mount Horeb just like Moses did. Is Elijah the next Moses? So when they're hearing this, they must be thinking when he gets to Mount Horeb, just like when Moses got to Mount Horeb, and just like when Moses with the Israelites after Egypt got to Mount Sinai, boy, it's pretty fantastic. And Elijah just had a Mount Carmel experience, so this coming up must be especially fantastic. So let's read on verses 9 through 18 and and see how God will provide for Elijah and how he will strengthen him in the midst of his despair. Verse 9, there Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh. And behold, Yahweh passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but Yahweh was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but Yahweh was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper, And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So upon arrival to some cave on the mountain of God, God asks Elijah, what's your business here? Why are you here? And Elijah in verse 10 shares his frustration. His frustration. Now notice, when he was on Mount Carmel, he said similar words, right? He said, I, only I am left of Yahweh before he, when he was standing before the prophets of Baal. But now he's standing before Yahweh. He said, only I, only I am left. And he's saying that in despair as a despondent prophet. So God responds to him and tells him, hey, go stand before me. Go out there, go stand before Yahweh. Now remember the connection to Moses. If you recall Moses' experience at Mount Sinai, on Mount Horeb, one might expect something magnificent as Moses' experience. 
right? That would be the historical record here. So there was a strong wind. It caused the rocks to be broken. And certainly, this must be Yahweh. I mean, after all, when Yahweh appeared to Job, when Job was complaining, how did Yahweh appear to Job? Out of a whirlwind, out of a strong wind. So this must be Yahweh, but it's not Yahweh. Following the wind, there's an earthquake. Well, this has to be Yahweh. It means like fire coming down from heaven on Mount Carmel or even at Mount Sinai. The ground shook where Yahweh was. So surely the earthquake is Yahweh. No, Yahweh's not in the earthquake. Ah, a fire. This one must be it, right? Third time's a charm. Fire was on top of Mount Sinai. It consumed the top of Mount Sinai. This very mountain that Elijah is on, God has appeared in the fire. So God must be in the fire. But Yahweh was not in the fire. So if Yahweh wasn't in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire, well, where was he? What's the next magnificent event to occur that God would use to reveal himself to his prophet who is discouraged, who is frustrated, who is despondent? A whisper, a small, still voice. It could also be translated as a thin silence. And Elijah, he's not sitting there, right? This isn't like a whisper inside your head where he's like, is that the voice of God? Or, 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 or what, did I actually hear that? No, he, he knew what he heard. It was clear to him what it was. And it was clear to him it was Yahweh. It's why he covered his face with a cloak. He wasn't left wondering if it was his own voice or Yahweh's voice. When Yahweh speaks to you, there's no doubt that he is speaking to you, right? He's Yahweh. You, you can't refuse his, his glory. You can't deny it either. So Elijah, recognizing it, it is Yahweh, he covers his face with his cloak, lest the holiness of God strike him down. Just as God covered the face of Moses when he passed before Moses centuries before, and the same mountain, and maybe even the same cave. We don't know that, but there's a chance. We don't know what Elijah was exactly expecting in this moment when he went out there. But what God showed him was that the glory of God isn't always a magnificent event, like what happened on top of Mount Carmel or as he acted on Mount Sinai centuries before. And God gave Elijah what he needed, the word of Yahweh, the word of God. And what does Yahweh say to him in this whisper, in this thin silence? Same as moments before. What are you doing here? Why are you here? This is not a curiosity question by Yahweh, right? It's not like, Elijah is a friend who just happened to stop by. Oh, what brings you in today? No, it's like, what are you doing? This is an implied rebuke. You have a business that you should be going about. Why are you here? And Elijah answers the same. And how does, as he, as he answered the question initially, right? He explains his frustration. Same answer. And how does Yahweh answer Elijah's despair? I mean, Elijah's almost like a child here. Gives, gives God the same answer twice, the same question, as if he's going to expect a different response. And how does God answer? Well, he doesn't. Not directly, anyway. Yahweh just gives him further instructions. Essentially, puts him back to work. See, despite what Elijah thinks, despite what Elijah feels about the current situation of Israel, God's not done working. God is still at work. Sure, Mount Carmel has come and gone, but the work of God is most often found in what the world considers to be the mundane, quiet routine of life. That's often how God works. 
So don't let the devil cause you to believe that a life of faith is a sensational life, full of one mountaintop experience after the next. I mean, have you seen the size of a mountaintop? Have you been on top of a mountain? It's not very big, right? Most mountaintop summits, the official summit, the official mountaintop of a mountain is rather small. The valley that you have to take to get to that mountaintop is much bigger than the mountaintop itself. And when you're on that mountaintop, you're surrounded by valleys, which can vary in size. So as you're navigating the highlands of life, which one do you think you're going to be in more, mountaintops or valleys? Valleys, of course. Consider the harvest season. How long is the harvest compared to the planting and growing season? How long is labor compared to the nine months that a mother carries a child in the womb? Yahweh's answer to his despondent prophet is this. What are you doing here? Get back to work. But in the midst of these instructions, God, by his grace and mercy, does comfort Elijah a little bit. He tells Elijah, hey, I will keep. He says, yet I will keep. I will preserve 7,000 of my people who are faithful. I will preserve them through the coming affliction, and I will preserve them from idolatry. They will not kiss Baal. They will not worship him. And the number 7,000 may be a symbolic number. Uh, The number seven is often symbolic for completeness, perfection, uh, a a totality of something. And the number thousand itself can be uh, symbolic for a a, a significant um, amount or or a a significant amount of of, of majesty or a degree of significance. So it's possible that 7,000 may be a symbolic number representing an amount that is perfect in accordance to the will of God, that he will preserve a, a number in perfect accordance to his will, but it's not an insignificant number. It's a significant number that he's going to preserve. Or it might not be simply symbolic. It might be also precise. We just don't know. Interestingly enough, out of these three assignments that God gives Elijah, only one of them does he actually do personally. The other two, uh, Elisha. Elisha does one, and then Elisha's servant does the third. So let's read on verses uh, 19 through 21 and read the one instance, the one of these assignments that Elisha actually does, starting in verse 19. So Elijah departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elisha and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And Elisha said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So Elijah, now with bold new tasks and challenges before him, having heard the word of Yahweh on God's mountain, gets to work. No longer does he fear the hand of Jezebel. So he arrives in Abel Mahala, And he finds Elisha and calls him to follow him. And notice what Elisha is doing. Elisha is working. Matthew Henry comments on this by saying, He found him not in the schools of the prophets, but in the field. Not reading, nor praying, nor sacrificing, but plowing. Right? He wasn't doing anything magnificent. And he also wasn't being lazy either. He was doing what life required of him. He was tending to to the task before him. 
Now, Elisha, he obviously, if you notice to how many oxen that was pulling his plow, he comes from a wealthy family. Twelve yoke of oxen. Now, I want to know what kind of size plow you had to have back then to have 12 yoke of oxen to pull, right? Or maybe you just made it faster. I don't know. I, I, I just don't know. But that's a lot of oxen. And he takes these oxen and he sacrifices them, boils them, and then serves them up. Now, consider how much meat that is. Have you seen an oxen? That's a lot of meat. So he either has like a really big family or he has a really big uh, network of friends and high social influence. But the important thing to note here is not just his wealth, but how he just burned it all. He burned it and ate it. How he separates himself from his old life to the new life that he's called to. And he knows the life that he's called to. He must know that Elisha, he's a wanted man. King Ahab, Queen Jezebel wants him dead. Surely there's a bounty on his head. And Elisha knows that by following him, he would be a wanted man too. But he goes because he knows God is calling him. If Elijah, the prophet, is calling him, he sees that as the word of Yahweh calling him. So Elijah, he leaves nothing behind him that he would be able to be tempted to look back. He's burning the boats, so to speak. Jesus in Luke 9.62 says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. In other words, as you are called, as you are born again, as you are redeemed, as you are ransomed by the blood of the Son, we have no business to look back on our old life longingly as if we miss it. We should be looking forward into eternity. We must not be like Lot's wife, looking back on Sodom and Gomorrah, looking back at it longingly like, oh, there goes my home of old, there goes my old way of life. No, we, we burn it, and we want to burn it so that if we feel the temptation to look back, there's nothing to look back to. We are to keep our eyes, we keep our hands to the plow forward into eternity for the kingdom of God. And it's the same for us. So having looked at Elijah in this chapter, having seen how God fed him, filled that void that he was feeling, what does this have to do with us? Everything. Do you not get discouraged at times? Are you not tempted to go from one mountaintop experience to the next mountaintop experience? Especially in a society that, that teaches you, uh, conditions us to, to that, that, that FOMO, right? That, that fear of missing out. That you don't want to miss out on this next thing. Or you need to get the next greatest, biggest thing because you want this. It's all about the immersive experience. And life is all about what you experience and how you, the sensations that you are able to enjoy and just going from one moment to the next. Are you seeking God's glory in the wind, the earthquake, the fire, or something else magnificent? Are you thinking, perhaps, that because God is silent, or he's quiet and still, that he either doesn't care for you, or maybe he's just ineffective, he's not sovereign? Or, or maybe you think, well, I just don't have enough faith, or my faith isn't good enough for me to have these mountaintops experiences. Well, ask yourself this. What are you doing here? What are you doing here at Hope Community Church? What do you expect to see? What are you hoping to find? What are you wanting to experience? Are you waiting for fire to come down? Or are you thinking, as one famous speaker once said, we are settling for woefully less than what Jesus promised us. I read my New Testament over and over. I'm not seeing what he promised. 
I'm unsettled and unsatisfied. I want holy fire. Imagine if Elijah said that to Yahweh. Elijah hears the thin whisper and goes, ah, you know, this is great, Yahweh, but what I was really hoping for and what I really need is that holy fire that you sent him out, Carmel, a couple weeks ago. You remember that? That was really, really grand, really nice. Can I get another one of those, please? I mean, I love that we can talk like this, but I'm just not satisfied with it. I'm just not, I'm unsettled by this. I need more, God. Give me that holy fire. How do you think it would have gone for Elijah in that moment? Probably not well, right? But that's exactly how Beth Moore thinks and others who follow her and adore her teachings. They're seeking the holy fire. They're seeking these miracles. And those who seek holy fire, those who seek miracles, they're seeking idols. They're not seeking God. They've denied the grace of God given to them in his word, and they are seeking experiences and moments to know God. They do so either denying or just not understanding in ignorance that to know God is a lifelong pursuit of dying to self daily and accepting the truth that his grace is sufficient. It is living in the valley, not on top of the mountain. Miracles do not sanctify us. Miracles do not justify us. Clearly, the Mount Carmel experiences should be enough for that, right? Was Israel sanctified by that? Was King Ahab repentant of it? No. What about the Israelites as they wandered through the desert? All the miracles they saw, but yet how did they behave? God's word is what sanctifies, John 17, 17. And faith in him is what justifies. So after reading 1 Kings 19, what do you think is the right response to this? According to Jesus in Matthew 12, those who look for signs and miracles, they are a faithless and adulterous generation. Those who believe in Christ, those who, as Jesus talks about in John 6, those who are, are called by the Father, they don't need signs. They don't need miracles. They know who he is. Jesus is the sign. He is it. We don't need miracles to affirm that. We have Christ. He, we have the word of God. And that's when, when we ask ourselves, what should we be looking for? Well, think about the church next to what did the church in Acts 2 look for? They had just experienced Pentecost. They had the tongues, uh, people talking in tongues and languages. They had tongues of fire dancing upon their heads. They had this sermon by, by Peter. And, and what did they devote themselves to? The next Pentecost? The next charismatic revival? The next miracle? The next experience? No, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the word by the apostles. And what did Elijah find on this sacred mount? This mount that has a history of miracles, a history of signs. What did he find? The word of God. Though Elijah was fed bread, it wasn't the bread that sent him back to Israel. It was the word of Yahweh on Mount Horeb. And this brings us to another point. Consider Matthew 4.4. 4. Jesus himself, after traveling 40 days and 40 nights, is tempted by Satan. Right? And Jesus' stomach, it is empty. Just like Elijah, his soul was in despair. His, his joy, it was empty. And they both went turned to the same thing to fill it before the devil could fill it with something evil. They turned to the word of God. Jesus responds to Satan's temptation of giving him bread, says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's done so as we obey the word of God, as we abide in it. Jesus here, he's quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3. Let's read that as well. Moses writes, And he, that's Yahweh, humbled you and let you hunger 
and fed you with manna from heaven, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. We could also say, in the context of all this, man doesn't live by miracles alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. Through the word of God, we are given instruction, we are given purpose, and we find fulfillment which sustains us. Elijah was in despair. He felt defeated. And how did God respond to him? By instructing him and in reminding him that he, Yahweh, is still sovereign. In doing so, one of the things Elijah must do is he needs to make a disciple. In fact, it is through this disciple, Elisha, that God will complete the other tasks that Elijah was given. See, God doesn't, need, God doesn't normally use miracles to bring about his work. It's through disciple-making. Elisha, as we're going to see, is going to have a greater impact in the nearer future of Israel. Elijah has a greater impact in scope of redemptive history, right? At the end of the Old Testament, I mean, we'll read, eventually Elijah gets taken up to be with God before he dies. He comes back in Mount Transfiguration with Moses. Malachi 4 ends the Old Testament, pairing him up with Moses. Jesus comes in the power of Elijah. So Elijah is definitely significant, like more significant than Elijah. But as we read through Kings, Elijah is going to actually get more done in the immediate future than what, than what we read of Elijah doing. Now, it's the same for us. While our conversions may have been dramatic or not, the work of God in our lives often is not as dramatic as our born-again moment, depending on how you were born again. In fact, the main work of which we are called to, the main work of which God uses to bring about revival is not through emotionally driven praise shows. It is not through emotionally powerful youth conferences, right? There's no shortage of an emotionally powerful youth conference in the United States, right? I mean, thousands of kids go to emotionally, more than thousands of kids, right? We're talking nationally, tens of thousands of kids go to emotionally powerfully driven youth conferences around the country, right? Well, where are they? Well, they go to college and they find some other emotionally powerful experience, another mountaintop. They find another God, so to speak, a Baal, because that's what they know. They're not given the truth. They're given whatever truth they have is just diluted with emotions and experience and energy and loud noise and staying up late and having fun and not the truth. They don't get what they need, hence many of them, not all of them by God's grace. Many of them, when they get to college, they find another experience and they leave the faith. They were never part of it. But it's through the making of disciples, that is God's main work, the Great Commission, that God brings about revival. And making disciples is not a miracle-driven process. We get the Great Commission not from some best-selling book on church strategy or evangelism, and it's amazing how many there are, because God, again, he speaks plainly about how this is to be done. Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go, therefore... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's it. You ask, how do I make a disciple? That's it. This isn't coded. I know we look at this sometimes and go, well, I wonder how I teach them. Well, you have to know the commandments, right? You have to know, what, you have to know Scripture. And then you just teach that. Well, I don't know all the answers. Well, that's all right. That's why we have the body of Christ. That's why you're being discipled, right? So it, it, it's, it's plain. And we need to understand that this is your task, 
Right? This isn't just the pastor's task. This is your task. This is more than your task. This is why you exist. This is why you've been called into, one of the reasons you've been called into the kingdom. That wherever you work, God should be able to find you plowing, so to speak. Wherever your workplace That is your ministry. That is your field that you are to work. You are to glorify God wherever you are. If you find work lacking, like, oh, man, it's just, it's toxic. Well, good thing you have the light in you. Good thing that you're the light in the darkness. Good thing that you can witness the gospel of Christ in that toxic workplace. Well, it's just unfulfilling. Well, good thing you're not there to find fulfillment. You're there to do the Great Commission and find fulfillment and making disciples in that by making God known. You find your life empty, go make a disciple. Tend to the task given to you by God. And understand, disciple-making is the outflow of one's walk with Christ. You're not going to make disciples without knowing his word, without knowing Christ, because you're just making yourself. And who, I mean, I don't care what you think about yourself, you're not that great, right? None of us are. We want, to re- we want to replicate Christ, not ourselves. And in order to replicate Christ, we need to know him more, even more than we know ourselves. In fact, we use him to know ourselves and correct ourselves and sanctify ourselves and so forth. So we glorify him by knowing him and making him known. And of course, don't miss the last part of Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, I am with you always. Because it's not easy, right? Elijah was never alone, though he felt alone. You are never alone, though you may feel alone. Jesus, and he's all you need, he is with you to the end of the age. So, back to our question, what are you doing here? I pray that you are here to seek the word of God, so that you may know him and get back to work. That is to make disciples using his word. Realizing that what sustains you is not your emotions. And praise God, it's not our emotions that sustains us. Praise God that our emotions don't dictate the level or the strength of our faith. Praise God that we can be like Elijah at times. We can despair, we can struggle with depression, we can struggle with anxiety, because it's not a mark of our faith. But we know that it is his word that sustains us, and we can go to him in those moments. It's not even the miracles of God that sustain us. So if there's a lack of miracle working in our lives, so what? That's how God operates on the norm. Scripture is a a blip in history of all the events that it records. Do not think. When people say, oh, you just need to open up your eyes to miracles and you see them all the time. Well, one, if they're happening all the time, it's it's not really all that miraculous if it's a normal, common thing. And two, again, like we just talked about, if people are trying to teach you to find miracles that you can see miracles, stay away from them. It's not biblical. Where in the epistles do you have the, the Paul, Peter, John ever saying, search for miracles, do this? No, it's always put off the old stuff, put on the new stuff, walk in holiness. You're redeemed, sacrifice, crucify yourself. It's not like, seek this miracle, do that miracle. No, that's nothing. It's all about faith. Faith in his word, Jesus Christ, who is the word in the flesh, John 1. Consider John 6, where Jesus states, I am the bread of life. The fathers of Israel, they ate the miracle of manna, and yet they died. But the one who believes in the Son, who eats the bread of life by abiding in him, shall not taste death. Through this 
excuse me, though this body, our body, perishes, his word, faith in him, will sustain us. And when darkness and despair is all around you, look to the light of the world in John 8, the one who exposes the works of darkness and leads people to repentance. When you feel lost in life, you're under that broom tree, so to speak, Listen for the voice of the Good Shepherd in John 10, the Good Shepherd who lays down his life for you. And praise God that his voice is right here. This is the then silence. And sometimes, depending on how you read this, it can be really silent when you read it. But it's right here for us. And his voice will guide you to himself, who is the gate to the kingdom. When death or suffering touches you, look to the life and the resurrection. John eleven twenty five. When doubts in the world overwhelm you, the prophets of Baal seem to be prospering and and Jezebel seems to be reigning powerfully, hold true. Remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. And then in order for all this to be effective, in order for us to enjoy these things, we must abide in him who is the true vine, John 15, the true Israel. And an abiding that is not secured by abiding in the miraculous or in the sensational or in the emotional highs. You don't always have to be positive. You don't always have to be full of like apparent joy to everyone to abide in Christ, but simply by abiding in his word. The one who loves Christ is the one who obeys his commandments. And please understand this. Love and obedience in scripture are never divorced. They are never separated. You cannot love God and not obey him. Those who do not obey him do not love him. That's not me. That's God talking. That's what God says. It's plain as day in scripture. You cannot faithfully read scripture and think, well, I can love him and not do what he says. No, you can't. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's everywhere in scripture. Just open it and read it. So we abide in him by loving him, by obeying his word. We do this as we trust him and we put our faith in him as we look to the Son of God. And let us now rejoice in this with communion. Let us now rejoice in this good news as we prepare ourselves to come up, as we take the bread, which is his body, which in John 6 he talks about, I give my flesh for this world, his body that he gave for us. And as we take the cup, which is his blood that he shed for for the forgiveness of our sin. And may we do so with repentant hearts of gratitude. And as we go out, let us go out as saints that are refreshed and strengthened to honor him in all we do. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity of grace, for this privilege to hear your word. Thank you for Elijah and all that you've called him to do for your glory and for our edification. We thank you that You provided for him so many centuries ago on that mount, that you gave him his word and that we are able to know of this event in his life, that we are are taught by you how special your word is, that the simple revelation that you have given to us through the prophets, through the scribes, through the apostles is an act of grace in itself. Father, help us to live our lives truly understanding that your grace is sufficient that we, we don't need miracles. Help us, help us to long for your glory however you decide to reveal your glory. If you do miracles, so be it, Father. 
But let that not be our sustenance. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be grounded and rooted in the foundation of your word, of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to continue to look to him when we doubt, when we struggle with our faith, when we become fearful, when we are despaired, when we are discouraged. Help us to, again, just gaze upon your son, gaze upon Calvary. Help us to ask for help for our unbelief. Father, help us to keep our emotions, our, our feelings in check. We may not be able to control them at times, Father, but help us to process them. That when we become anxious, we go to you. That when we become depressed or discouraged, we go to you. We go to you always in prayer. Always remembering what you have done for us through your Son and what you will continue to do for us. That you will hold us fast. So Father, encourage us and strengthen us here this morning. Draw us to your word continually, even in the mornings or in the nights, in the days when we don't feel like it, when we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we, when we just want that next miracle. We want a miracle in our lives, Father. Help us to go to your word. Help us to understand the significance, the weight, the glory that it holds. And that if you are to reveal yourself to us, we must abide in it. Father, help us in this endeavor, and we ask that you would bless the elements before us as we come to the table that your son has prepared for us, the, the, the cup and the bread, that they would be gifts of grace to us, that they would encourage us and strengthen us this morning. Help us to confess our sins to you and to others. Help us to be reconciled not only to you, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to anyone else whom we may have offended. Help us to be the light that you call us to be. Father, as we come to the table Help us to not feel the guilt of our sin, but help us to feel the joy of forgiveness, the joy of the truth that there is no condemnation for those of us in Jesus Christ. And as we go out from this table, we sing praises of your works and what your Son has done on the cross. May we glorify him in all that we do. May we keep both hands to the plow, and when he returns, may he find us plowing so that you would be honored. And help us to keep the faith in all situations. Father, we ask all these things for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, uh, we'll go into communion. Uh, Matt will come on up.